On the afternoon of 4th of July weekend in 1991, Douglas Wagg Jr. rode off on his bike in hopes of joining in on some of the festivities. But Doug never made it home, and the next time he was seen was as he lay across a stretch of railroad tracks under the dim headlamp beam of an oncoming train. In this season of Counterclock, investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra is turning back the clock to dive into exactly how Doug died and how he ended up on the tracks so far from his home. But while Delia's investigation for this season of Counterclock started as a look into one man's suspicious death, what she uncovered is so much more. A string of crimes, a growing number of mysterious deaths, and cases so baffling that make this season of Counterclock the most intense investigation yet. Join the Crime Junkie fan club to binge all episodes of Counterclock Season 6 now, or listen to new episodes weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. For over 40 years, the family of Brenda Lacombe has wondered what happened to the 19-year-old single mother of a little baby boy after she walked out of her grandmother's apartment in the early morning hours of May 16, 1982, in Lowell, Massachusetts. Although Brenda's lifestyle at the time had her mixed up with a rough crowd and risky behaviors, she adored her son and never would have taken off without any word back to her family. Weeks passed, her siblings checked hospitals, called police stations, talked to her friends, visited the places she was known to hang out, and scoured the newspaper for any clues as to where Brenda had gone. Then, almost three weeks later, there was an article in the paper. There was an article about a body being found, and she just had a feeling and knew. And uh, that's when they found out that that was Brenda. And everybody was devastated. Lacey Kearns has taken the lead in the fight for answers in her Aunt Brenda's case. Though she never got to meet Brenda, Lacey wants to help her family finally learn the truth after all these years. I'm Kylie Lowe, and with Lacey Kearns, this is the case of Brenda Lacombe on Dark Down East. Lacey Kearns wasn't even born yet when her aunt, her mother's sister, Brenda Lacombe, was murdered. But she knew about her aunt Brenda from a young age. I've known just about as long as I can remember. I only began to understand what it meant as time went on. 
Once I finally had an idea of what happened, I began asking questions. Lacey's questions mounted as she watched her mother, Barbara, dig into newspaper archives at the local library, looking for any shred of detail about Brenda. She remembers her mom paying a visit to the police station, asking for updates in Brenda's case. Barbara talked to people who knew Brenda, wrote letters to the editor, and advocated for her sister for years. That dedication inspired Lacey, even as a little girl. Lacey began researching her Aunt Brenda's case in earnest a few years ago, when she started to develop an interest in genealogy. As I started looking things up, I, it just got my inquisitive mind going. <laughs> I started finding different articles and then questioning people and getting um, as much information as I could on her case. And the more that I got, it, the crazier things got and strings everywhere. Lacey keeps pulling those strings, unraveling a case that has sat unsolved for over 40 years. She has become the voice for Brenda. She doesn't want her aunt to be forgotten. I want them to know what happened to her. <laughs> I want them um, to not disregard you know, who she was and to, to mainly remember the good things, but also her life mattered, you know, it matters. No matter what you or he or she or anyone thought of her, you know, somebody lost their mother, their sister, their best friend. She was a good person. You're hearing the audio from old home videos captured by Brenda Lacombe's family. Brenda. <laughs> Are you sure? Mm. What's Percy. the matter with Brenda? Percy and George. There's a child speaking to the person behind the camera, naming off all the people in the room, saying Brenda's name. And then there's Brenda's voice, subtle, a little difficult to discern with the audio quality of a 1980s camcorder. But she speaks to her father. What do you say, Dad? She says. What do you say, Dad? What do I say, Brenda? I'd like to say a lot of them. These tapes are just one of the ways that Lacey Kearns has learned about and connected with the aunt she never got the chance to meet. Brenda Jean Lacombe was born December 21, 1962. She was one of ten children, with four sisters and five brothers. Her childhood was tumultuous, punctuated by instability. Growing up, Brenda and none of the kids had it easy, I'll say that. She had been in and out of foster care for some time, and my mom was too. A lot of the kids were. A lot of not good stuff going on at home. But family remained important to Brenda. She became a motherly figure to her younger siblings. Her family, um, she loved them very much, and... Um, They'll always say how much she loved Christmas because she was born December 21st, 1962. So I think that whole, you know, week and a half was probably just extra special to her. So she always made that fun. She was strict with her younger siblings, but she was also fun with them. She mothered them, but she would dance around the house with them too. Then they'd make sure they put their toys away and, you know, make sure they ate their supper and things like that. They remember going to the beach with her, going to the White Mountains, you know, just a lot of happy memories, just small things growing up that, you know, always stay with them. 
her friends will tell you how kind-hearted and vulnerable and even soft-spoken which you know I've I hear soft-spoken and then I hear feisty I'm like wow that does sound like 19 to me in her teenage years Brenda ended up in abusive relationships she always seemed to choose the wrong type of guys a lot of bad guys really bad guys I know she got beat up a lot Brenda was 18 years old when she gave birth to her son Wayne Matthew His name was later changed to Matthew Wayne. Lacey told me she's heard stories about Matthew's father, that he was abusive and violent towards Brenda. Lacey also said that the child's father allegedly knocked one of Brenda's front teeth out. He wasn't really involved in their son's life either, and so Brenda was a young single mother. It was undeniably challenging, but she absolutely adored Matthew. He was an anchor for Brenda, who often seemed adrift in life. Police reports allude to Brenda's possible drug use, marijuana, cocaine, possibly heroin, but none of the reports are consistent or verified. Lacey knows that Brenda certainly wasn't using when she was pregnant. Lacey has also heard the rumor that Brenda may have been involved with sex work, but those rumors seem to be unfounded. There's a lot of rumors that are out there that I don't, I don't like, you know, like some people have said that she's into or has been into prostitution. Well, I will tell you right now, there is zero record of that. And the only trouble that she wasn't even arrested for was I think she was 16 and there was some type of argument at home and the cops came and nothing happened. Other than that, no. The rumors about Brenda's activities and lifestyle would play a part in the investigation when in the spring of 1982, Brenda left her grandmother's house late one night and never came back. It was the evening of May 15, 1982, and 19-year-old Brenda Lacombe had plans to go out with her sister Bev and Bev's boyfriend Jack. And they were supposed to be going on a double date and the plans got canceled for some reason. I'm not sure why. So... Jack and my Auntie Bev bought Brenda wine and they dropped her off at her grandmother Pearl's house to play cards because they always played cards. My family was big on that. Brenda's grandmother lived at the Francis Gatehouse Elderly Housing Complex along the Pawtucket Canal on Moody Street in Lowell, Massachusetts. The large brick building was once a mill and has since been converted into condos. The area back then was similar to what it is today, largely residential, with multi-unit homes and apartment buildings wedged tightly together on surrounding streets. So Brenda drank wine and played several hands of a rummy-style card game, but at one point during the evening, Brenda put down her hand and went to make a phone call. No one knows who Brenda was trying to reach. After the call, they resumed their game of cards until the phone rang just after midnight. Brenda answered. The call was for her, but again, No one knows who called for Brenda that night. Brenda hung up the phone and told her grandmother that she was going over to her boyfriend Mark's house. He lived just a few blocks away on Broadway. Brenda actually left her pocketbook behind when she walked out the door of her grandmother's apartment and left the Francis Gatehouse, stepping into the dark night all alone. Do you want to set your child up for success and help them learn too? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. 
iXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. Powered by advanced algorithms, iXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. iXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S., and there's one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids can even access iXL on the go through the app on your phone or tablet. No more trying to figure out how to explain math equations or grammar rules yourself. iXL has built-in explanation videos. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get iXL now. And Dark Down East listeners can get an exclusive 20% off iXL membership when they sign up today at iXL.com slash downeast. Visit iXL.com slash downeast to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. We're finally emerging from winter here in Maine, and I think it's now safe to pack away my parka and sweaters and dig out my shorts and sundresses. If you've been wanting to update your wardrobe for this next season and beyond without spending a fortune, Quince is for you. Quince has timeless pieces like premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Before I buy anything, like clothing, accessories, stuff for my home or my daughter, I check Quince first because they always have identical items for so much less. I recently bought a neoprene carry-on bag from Quince that looks designer, but is a fraction of the designer version's price tag. I also just added to my cart a silk skirt and a linen top that I'm going to be living in with some light wash denim this summer. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash downeast for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash downeast to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash downeast. Since Brenda had plans to be out on the night of May 15th, her son was in the care of her father, who often watched Matthew when Brenda needed a sitter. She had a doctor's appointment scheduled for Matthew the next morning, but Brenda didn't show up as scheduled. It immediately raised concern among her family. So that was a huge red flag because she never missed a doctor's appointment or anything to do with Matthew like that. She actually carried him around with her a lot wherever she went. So it was unusual for her not to be, you know, around him. With no call and no sign of Brenda, her family started looking. My mom and my aunt and probably my uncle too, my Uncle Eddie, I know for sure, went to everybody's house they could think of. You know, they went to the surrounding police stations. They called the hospitals, you know, checked anywhere they thought she might have hung out and she didn't turn up. Brenda's father reported her missing. The initial report was filed on May 17, 1982. I know that my grandfather had gone to the police station right away. He just knew something wasn't right. According to police reports obtained by Lacey Kearns from the Lowell Police Department, Brenda Lacombe's disappearance was investigated in the days following. In a follow-up report dated May 19, 1982, filed by an unknown officer, It states that this officer and a Sergeant Newell visited Brenda's known address on Fulton Street in Lowell as part of the missing persons investigation. The report is redacted to remove names of those interviewed 
and their relationship to Brenda, but it's possible to decipher that the officer spoke to a male resident of the same apartment as Brenda. Brenda was known to be living with her father at that address, and so although the name is redacted for clarity, I'll refer to the man as Brenda's father. Brenda's father told officers that Brenda had done this in the past, but has always called him to tell him where she was. Her father also said that in the past, she'd been with a man whose name is redacted from the report. It's unclear if been with means dating or being involved with that person in a different way. However, Brenda's father told officers that this man allegedly once kept Brenda in his apartment for two days against her will and forced Brenda to take narcotics. He also stated that this man punched out Brenda's front tooth and fractured her jaw, but she was afraid of the man, and so she did not report the incident to police. Connecting strings here, Lacey has heard that the man responsible for knocking out Brenda's tooth was Brenda's son's father. In the report, Brenda's father said it was possible that Brenda was with her son's father or in the company of another person whose name and address are also redacted. The report ends with a simple statement. Investigation continued. The next activity in the investigation into Brenda Lacombe's disappearance appears to be in early June of 1982. A report dated June 2, 1982, states that a Lowell police officer conducted interviews with people at Fred's Country Store on Middlesex Street in Lowell, asking around about Brenda, which gave the investigator a few new names and addresses to check, though all are redacted from the report. The officer then checked at the Three Z's, a local bar in downtown Lowell. A woman there told the officer she believed she saw Brenda around the night of her disappearance at the bar having a drink with a man. According to this woman, the interactions between Brenda and the man weren't concerning, and Brenda seemed normal. The report states exactly, quote, didn't appear to be any problem with her, end quote. The officer continued the investigation that day, speaking with a bartender at another establishment who said that someone close to Brenda, their relationship redacted, hung around the bar a lot, but Brenda herself hadn't been seen there in a while. On June 3, 1982, a Lowell police officer spoke to a representative from the Department of Massachusetts Cruelty to Children. The officer states that this representative previously investigated Brenda and kept a check on her. It's unclear the nature of that investigation or what it was pertaining to, but the representative told the officer that she believed something was wrong for Brenda to not have called or checked in after more than two weeks. Also detailed in that report, Brenda had previously shared with this representative that she'd gotten in an argument with an unnamed man because he wanted her to bring drugs into some unknown place, and Brenda had turned the man in. All of these reports by the Lowell Police Department during the days and weeks following Brenda's disappearance introduce a lot of leads, but none of them pointing to where Brenda might have been for sure. On June 4, 1982, police discussed Brenda's disappearance in the daily roll call briefing. The roll call write-up includes a blurry photo of Brenda Lacombe and the following information. The below picture is the resemblance of Brenda Lacombe. Her hair will be on the brownish red side, weight will be about 100 pounds, 
with one front tooth missing. Needle marks in arms is a heroin user, believed to be in the company of blank. Rumor has it that he is heading for blank, she may be with him. We do hold a bench warrant for her arrest, which we would like kept quiet until she is located. Any information of her whereabouts or those of blank would be appreciated. She has been missing since May 16th, 82, and has a baby here. No word of where she might be. Thanks for your help, Skip Hunter, Juvenile Bureau. At the time of her disappearance, according to this roll call briefing, Brenda Lacombe was wanted on a bench warrant. Lacey learned what that bench warrant was for. She was subpoenaed to court to testify for being a witness in a fire. She did not show up. She did not want to testify and she wanted nothing to do with it. In the spring of 1982, Lowell, Massachusetts saw several deadly fires in the city, including a four-alarm fire at an apartment tenement located at 1020 West 3rd Street. According to reporting in the Lowell Daily Sun by Margaret Connolly, 30 people were left homeless when the blaze ripped through the building in late April of 82. At the time of the initial coverage of the tragedy, no cause of the fire had been determined, but arson inspectors considered it suspicious. According to Lacey's research, this is the arson fire that Brenda witnessed. Whatever Brenda saw, or whatever she knew about that fire, possibly made Brenda a target of something or someone. Lacey told me that after the fire and the subpoena to testify, Brenda was afraid. And she had been, someone was following her. I don't know if it was one person, two, whoever. She had been followed around this time. And she was scared, you know. Every time she left the house, she used to walk a lot. And even more and more increasingly, she would take Matthew with her even when she was just walking down the street. Maybe in her mind, she thought that nobody would hurt her if she had her baby with her. And so it, I, I just know that it had something to do with the fire, or that's what I've been told. Everybody, you know, in the family just said, there's something to do with the fire, something to do with the fire. It seems, based on the case file, that the fire was explored as part of the investigation into Brenda's disappearance. There's a report in Brenda's case file dated June 2nd, 1982, but the contents are almost entirely redacted. All that remains on the page are these words. Following people present during Inspector Waterhouse's investigation into a fire at blank. People also know Brenda Lacombe. It's the first reference to a fire anywhere in Brenda's case. But of course, the location of the fire and any helpful details are redacted from the copy of the report released to Lacey. But for Lacey, the fact that a fire is discussed at all in the case documents feels like an important detail, a lead for sure. Was Brenda Lacombe's disappearance related to the possible arson case in which she was supposed to testify? The investigation into Brenda's disappearance was ongoing in early June 1982 when several towns over, in Harvard, Massachusetts, a horrible discovery put an end to the search. Harvard police received an anonymous tip around 1.45 p.m. on June 4, 1982. The tip said there was a body in the woods near Littleton County Road. 
in this little beautiful town that still looks exactly the same, you know, and it was just a bit off the highway. There was this married couple that were walking up the street. They smelled something. They wanted to get a closer look of, you know, where was that smell coming from? And that's when they found a decomposing body. Police responded to the area off Route 111 near 495 and searched the location. The tipsters directed police to a partially decomposed body behind an old stone wall. The original police report from Harvard police states that minutes later, by 1.58 p.m., the scene was secured with a rope around the perimeter to protect any evidence. By 2.15, the roads were closed to traffic as the investigation began. The body was not visually identifiable given its condition, and with no ID found at the scene, the person would have to be transported to the funeral home and await an autopsy before investigators knew whose body it was, what could have happened to the person, and how long the body had been behind that stone wall. Although no cause of death was immediately obvious, Harvard Police Chief Silvio Brule said they were treating the case as a homicide. The autopsy was scheduled for three days later, on June 7, 1982. But before the autopsy was even complete, Brenda Lacombe's sister called the police. Bev had checked the papers every day since her sister disappeared. My Annie Bev was looking through the newspaper constantly, seeing like if anybody was found. And there was an article about a body being found, and she just had a feeling and knew. In a June 7 report by Harvard Police, the officer writes that a caller, whose name is redacted, but we can assume it was Brenda's sister, stated that her sister, Brenda, was reported missing on May 18, 1982, and she had disappeared under very suspicious circumstances. The caller gave the officer a general description of Brenda's appearance, her hair color, weight, height, and age, as well as the clothing she was last known to be wearing. Her sister also informed police that Brenda was missing a front tooth. Notes from the autopsy on the same day indicate that the victim found in Harvard was missing the right front upper incisor tooth. The following day, the jawbone of the victim was examined and compared to dental records, confirming that the body was that of the missing 19-year-old woman, Brenda Jean Lacombe. The discovery of Brenda's body devastated her family as much as it opened a black hole of questions. What happened to Brenda after she left her grandmother's apartment that night in May of 1982? Who did she speak to on the phone before she left? And who killed the 19-year-old single mother and why? These are the questions that Lacey and her family want investigators to answer, no matter how many years have passed. If they can't, if they won't, Lacey intends to find the answers herself. When I was little, um, I told my mom that I would solve her sister's case because my mom, my Barbie, she always told me I could be anything, I could do anything. And so I believed I would solve her case. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu.
As a Dark Downies listener, you know the world can be an unpredictable place. But with every case, we've learned one thing. Your vigilance and preparation can be your greatest defense. That's why you should invest in Simply Safe Home Security today. Simply Safe is whole home protection with sensors to detect break-ins, fires, floods, and more. But the piece I appreciate the most is the line of indoor and outdoor cameras so I can have eyes everywhere, even when I'm away. How many stories have we heard about investigations stalling out because a location didn't have cameras or the cameras just weren't working that day? Of course, I hope I never have to rely on my cameras for that kind of info. But knowing they're there, watching who's coming and going at my house, both the invited and uninvited guests, gives me a sense of security I hadn't had in my own home before. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/downeast. That's simplysafe.com/downeast. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Investigators processed the scene in the woods off Littleton County Road for any evidence. Articles in the Lowell Sun at the time state that there were traces of clothing found near Brenda's body. According to a sketch of the location included in the original case file, some of the stones from the stone wall were knocked over, but there's no indication if they'd recently fallen from the wall or if it could have occurred when Brenda's body was dumped there. It was estimated that Brenda had been in that spot for at least three weeks, which would mean she could have been killed and dumped there on or around the same night she disappeared. Because of the advanced state of decomposition, the autopsy was ultimately inconclusive. The state pathologist was unable to determine Brenda's cause of death. According to Michael LaSalandra's reporting for the Lowell Sun, police first thought Brenda might have been picked up hitchhiking, but Sergeant William Shea said, quote, now I kind of doubt that, end quote. Police told the press that they were eyeing several suspects in the homicide investigation. Although investigators didn't have any hard evidence pointing to a motive or a specific suspect, Sergeant Shea indicated that he was optimistic about the cooperative effort between Harvard Police, the Worcester County DA's office, and Massachusetts State Police. Quote, I don't think I've ever seen a better coordinated effort. I think we'll come to a conclusion. End quote. But over a week later, that conclusion still hadn't come. A three-person team worked the case focusing their efforts on interviewing possible witnesses, hoping someone held a key detail or lead that they could run down. Investigators called the case a big puzzle, and the pieces weren't exactly falling into place. Lowell police continued on the investigation as well. Even though Brenda was found in a different county and jurisdiction, she disappeared from Lowell. And at the time, investigators believed that the key to her case was there. In another Lowell Police Department follow-up report dated June 9, 1982, the officer who wrote the report had spoken to a man who knew Brenda, but he said he hadn't seen her since just after she had the baby. This man is also identified in the report as a witness in an arson case, and he testified in that case the very same day he spoke with officers about Brenda. It seems, based on the report, that this could have been the same arson case for which Brenda was also supposed to be a witness. The man told the officer that before his testimony, he was approached by someone in a store who seemed to threaten him about his upcoming court appearance, 
allegedly telling him, quote, you know how to testify, end quote. The man explained that he felt Brenda was nervous about testifying in the case and thought the person charged with arson or one of his associates was capable of having something done about people testifying. In several other reports, witnesses mentioned that Brenda was nervous, scared, and worried about testifying in the arson case. She may have been threatened even, and grew so fearful of something or someone that she was even afraid to leave her apartment by herself. It certainly seems like one angle to Brenda's murder could be that she was killed for something relating to that arson case. But then again, Brenda didn't show up to testify, and there was a bench warrant out for her. Wouldn't that have satisfied whoever was trying to silence her in the first place? Then there's another possible angle. On the last night her family saw Brenda alive, she told her grandmother that she was going to her boyfriend Mark's house just a few streets over. In her own efforts to find answers for Brenda, Lacey Kearns located and spoke to Mark herself. She wanted to know if Brenda ever showed up at his place that night. I talked to Mark about this and Mark says, Mark has said multiple different versions of what happened, all of which are he, he wasn't there. You know, he was working until midnight, so he wasn't there. That he didn't see her, that he would remember because she would have slept over, he, that he remembered nothing. He started off with that too. Then he remembered that the cops questioned him and a few of the other guys that lived in the same house he lived in. Mark may have also refused a polygraph test during the original 1982 investigation, or he may have agreed to it. His story is inconsistent, and any records proving one way or another aren't publicly available. So was Mark on the list of suspects police were looking into? What about the father of Brenda's son? Was he on that list, given his alleged abuse against her? Lacey's research shows that Brenda's son's father was in prison at the time of her disappearance, and so it probably wasn't him. What other names might have been important to police as they spoke with Brenda's friends, family, acquaintances, and other tangential people in her life? Because so many key names are excluded from publicly released documents pertaining to the investigation, it's difficult to trace if the same people keep popping up from interview to interview. All we can really surmise from these documents is that police were investigating Brenda's disappearance and murder, and based on the number of red flags relating to people Brenda knew and had relationships with, police had a number of leads they could follow. But those leads didn't amount to any arrests. Not in 1982 or since. On the same day that police recovered Brenda Lacombe's body in Harvard, Massachusetts, another young woman went missing in nearby Billerica, Massachusetts. That day that she was discovered was when Judy Chartier disappeared. As she worked on her Aunt Brenda's case, Lacey was inspired to also help other families find answers in their loved ones' unsolved cases. She was particularly interested in the unsolved disappearance of Judith Chartier because of the parallel timing and location of her aunt's disappearance and murder. Come to find out, Brenda and Judy also ran in the same crowds. Their families were intertwined, and they knew the same people. Lacey decided to look into Judy's disappearance. If anything, maybe she'd get some new information to follow about the people Brenda hung around. But Lacey discovered so much more than that. 
On the night of June 4th and early morning hours of June 5th, 1982, 17-year-old Judith Chartier went to a party in North Billerica. Judy went to a party one day, and it was in the woods in North Billerica by the train station kind of area. And she got in a fight with her boyfriend and then drove him home. And then she came back to the the party that was in the woods. Um, This was again sometime after midnight. After Judy left the party, she disappeared without a trace. For several decades, investigators couldn't even locate her vehicle. She just vanished. That detail bothered Lacey. Going that many years and you can't even find a car, you know? You're like, all right, where on earth is she? You know, I had been doing maps, like, everywhere their party was, talked to their family a million times. I, I mean, I, I really did all the research possible on this. And um, I have a friend named Bruce Stebbins who does underwater droning and basically mapped out where for him to look and he had asked his friend Hans if he wanted to come with him and then they found his they found her car and she was in it 39 years after she disappeared divers located the body of Judith Chartier inside her vehicle in the Concord River about a half mile from where the party was in the North Billerica woods Lacey Kearns played a big part in that discovery finally Judy Chartier's family had an answer to their biggest question, but several more questions followed. What happened to Judy? And was she a victim of foul play? It was not ruled an accident. It is still an open and active investigation. I don't know that Brenda and Judy's cases are connected. Anything is possible, really. But it seems, if anything at all, they were around the same circles. The investigation into the disappearance and death of Judith Chartier is ongoing, as Lacey Kearns continues her own investigation, too. Brenda Lacombe's case went cold shortly after the initial case was opened. The years passed as her son, who was adopted by Brenda's aunt and uncle, went from baby to toddler to little boy. Though the leads dried up and the investigation was stagnant, Brenda's family never forgot about her. They were the voices speaking her name and pushing for answers. A full decade after her murder, Brenda's family pressed Lowell police to reactivate the investigation. And they did. Or at least they appeared to take some action. A new detective was assigned to the case, and the investigation received fresh attention in the local media. Lacey's mom, Barbara, spoke with Marsha Cassidy of the Lowell Sun in 1992, saying that although the whole family worried about Brenda and the crowd she had fallen into, they all loved her, and she didn't deserve to lose the opportunity to get back on a better path for herself and her baby. The family wanted answers. Quote, There has to be someone out there, somewhere, who knows something. We just want to know what happened to her. End quote. But the reactivated investigation, again, went nowhere. No arrests and no progress as far as Lacey and her mother could tell. In a September 2005 letter to the editor, Barbara Kearns addressed the Lowell Police Department in an open letter, revealing the runaround she'd gotten in recent years whenever she tried to get updates on Brenda's case. From the letter, I've had much communication over the years with the Lowell Police Department regarding my sister's murder. 
The Lowell Police Department did take full charge of the investigation for the first 16 years. However, the only interview material and only evidence was somehow lost. I did speak with Chief Edward Davis regarding the missing file. I asked the chief how this could happen and what is the policy on having a backup file. I did not and still do not know the Lowell Police Department's policy on backup files. He then told me that he will not discuss the Lowell Police Department's policies with me and not to call anymore. As the letter says, Barbara was told that a bulk of Brenda's case file was somehow lost over the years. But Lacey says that she's asked about the files too, and police deny that they lost anything. Whether it exists or it doesn't, Lacey has taken matters into her own hands, compiling a massive storage bin of documents she's collected herself. Notes, transcripts of conversations, copies of newspaper articles, and more. She'll do whatever she can to help investigators follow leads and keep pushing for answers in her aunt's case, including raising money to have Brenda Lacombe's body exhumed. I want, I'm really hoping for DNA. I want, I want to have the police look into the DNA. I want something that makes them actually work on her case. Getting a body exhumed isn't a simple process, and it's not cheap. It would have to be the next of kin. So we, you know, I have everybody on board with that. I guess you could say I'm kind of directing things. But you would need for the funeral home to be involved, and you'd need to get an excavator. You need to speak to the people at the cemetery, because sometimes they actually, they'll be charging you the fine to, you know, just to dig it up. Then you have to, between the funeral parlor, figure out the price for the container and the coffin itself to be replaced if it needs to be replaced. Then, I, depending, which would be really unlikely, but depending, some people would probably have to pay for a detail, but with the state, that would be out of this world if they did that. I don't think they're going to do that. They need to be present, though, so I need to let them know when. So they are there. Lacey started a GoFundMe to raise money for the exhumation. As of the original release date of this episode, Lacey has raised $5,335 of her $7,000 goal. You can contribute to the cause at gofundme.com slash a voice for Brenda. It doesn't matter how much time has passed. The memory of Brenda is ever present in her family. They miss her terribly. Especially my Uncle Eddie. He, he just misses her every day. They just would, they always dance together. My mom thinks of that song, Brenda and Eddie. I don't know if you know it. I'm a terrible singer, so I'm not going to do it. But um, yeah, he, he talks about her a lot. You know, my mom, my mom does too. Lacey never got to meet Brenda, but she feels her spirit as she works tirelessly on Brenda's case. Just as family was important to her Aunt Brenda, family is the biggest motivator for Lacey to find answers in Brenda's case. Just growing up, um, not knowing what happened has really just, you know, it stuck with me. And, and seeing that, you know, I could actually make a difference and I could actually solve her case and my family you know, it would be some type of closure for them. And so I want the truth. Let's get the truth already, you know. That's going to happen. I, 
I know it. I feel it. I'm not going to give up on it. And, you know, if somebody could just step forward and make it easier, that would be nice. Thank you. But you can live in fear until then. That's fine. If you have information regarding the unsolved 1982 homicide of Brenda Lacombe, please call the Worcester County District Attorney's anonymous tip line at 508-453-7589. Thank you for listening to Dark Down East. Sources cited and referenced for this episode are listed at darkdowneast.com. Please follow Dark Down East on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you could, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I love to hear what you think of the show and what you want to hear next, and reviews are really the best way to support this show and the cases I cover. If you have a personal connection to a case and you want me to cover it on this podcast, please contact me at hello at darkdowneast.com. Thank you for supporting this show and allowing me to do what I do. I'm honored to use this platform for the families and friends who have lost their loved ones, and for those who are still searching for answers in cold missing persons and homicide cases. I'm not about to let those names or their stories get lost with time. I'm Kylie Lowe, and this is Dark Down East. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.